There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin, and welcome to our one-year anniversary show for our podcast we launched almost exactly a year ago that we call Free Lunch. Pretty hard to believe, isn't it? It is really hard to believe that it's been a year, but last week we talked about probability, and this week we're going to do a quick review of our last 52 weeks of episodes Although we didn't have 52 weeks of episodes, Greg, we have 51. What, are we lazy or something? Why <laughs> Why don't we have 52? We took one week off for the Christmas holiday season, but that was it. Other than that, we've nailed every week. It seems like a long time ago we started this thing, and funny that we started it in the midst of a global pandemic, and here we are a year later, and we're just, we have a new set of lockdowns announced yesterday. Yeah, it's like nothing's changed. Exactly. Other than the fact that we're on episode 52. That's right. On that note, I got to say this, Greg. Episode 52. Yeah, right on. Bring it on. No, no, stop. Really, no, no. (laughs) All right. Well, listen, in the last year, we've talked about a lot of different topics, obviously. But today, we're going to lump them into three different buckets and talk about just a brief recap on some of the highlights of those topics and some of the highlights of the guest speakers that we've had. So those three topics, Greg, are investment theory, financial planning, and lifestyle planning. And when you think about the investment theory part, which episodes come to mind or which topics come to mind that you want to get into? It's interesting because when I look back on the episodes, we sort of created a bit of a journey starting Well, I guess on the second episode, the first episode, we just introduced ourselves and let everyone have a good look. But we started back on episode number two talking about asset allocation. I mean, that went all the way back to, well, even before modern portfolio theory, but modern portfolio theory, which was described by Harry Markowitz in the 50s, where he just looked at correlations among asset classes and discovered that by mixing asset classes or different classes of investments that behaved differently from each other, you could actually build a portfolio that offered the same expected return as a different portfolio, but with lower risk or lower volatility overall. And really that to us is the free lunch. And so we're not talking about the highest expected return. We're just talking about a portfolio with a similar expected return to another one with lower risk. And so that really kicked things off. That seems to align with investment theory. Absolutely. And from asset allocation, it leads us into the, as you say, the only free lunch other than this podcast, it leads us into diversification. That's right. And so asset allocation, we're talking about, in a sense, diversifying among asset classes, stocks, bonds, cash, real estate. And then when we talk about diversification, we're talking about diversifying within each of those asset classes. So not just owning Canadian stocks, for example, but owning Canadian, U.S., international, global stocks, 
not just owning stocks of large companies, but also owning shares of small companies and so on. And so looking at diversification, it allows us to more broadly invest our money in a much bigger basket of securities and offering that extra level of protection from risks of different types. But if you just get two things right, you're probably way further ahead than the average. So if you just get your asset allocation right and you're diversified, you really, you're 90% of the way there. And that's really the critical things are getting diversified and protecting the downside. Well, I want to use that word critical because I want to be critical about something, Greg. We did talk about stock picking in one of our episodes, and we've mentioned it a few times. And we liken stock picking, although it can be fun. Let me start there. It can be fun. Sure. But if you're just stock picking, it's more like Neanderthal-like knuckle-dragging behavior than actually modern portfolio theory type of portfolio, correct? Well, in the end, it's a zero-sum game. And I think that's the thing about stock picking. And as you say, it is fun, and we all still do it. I'm pretty sure everyone still has favorite stocks, but it's not necessarily the way to build the portfolio. It's something to do as based on personal interest or certain views like that. But in the end, and we've talked about stock picking, is there's two possible outcomes. There's two extreme possible outcomes when you pick individual stocks. And we called those GR for get rich or LE for lose everything. And nobody thinks they're going to lose everything. That's right. And of course, those are the extreme outcomes. But we talked about how by being diversified and holding a diversified portfolio, you narrow down the range of possible outcomes. You may not get rich, but you might earn a very reasonable return over a long period of time and have a very positive investment experience. And you definitely will not lose everything. So the downside is protected as well. And so diversifying narrows those outcomes and hopefully creates a better investment experience. So something investors will stick with. Well, and stock picking goes into the whole active versus passive debate that we talked about in one of our episodes. We've talked about it in a number of them. But if you're truly actively stock picking, you're just not giving yourself the best odds. That's right. You're just leaving a lot more to chance. And we talked about probability last time. And again, you're not increasing your odds. You're likely decreasing your odds. And so just by being invested in a broad-based market position, you're probably further ahead as long as you've got your asset allocation correct and you're diversified. Well, that's right. And again, it it gets into this concept of a zero-sum game. When you look at it and work with me on this one, the market return is the market return. Okay, it's the sum of all portfolios. The passive managers, or let's call them indexers, people that buy the index essentially get the market return minus a small amount for very small fees. That means the sum total of all of the balance of active portfolios have to, by definition, get the same return as the index minus fees. And so in the end, as Professor Fama would say, the winners eat the losers and it becomes a zero-sum game. And the average of all portfolios is the market average. Well, actually, they call it a negative-sum game. Because of costs. Exactly. So I think it's something that's really important to remember, because when we talk to people and we say, look, there are managers who will outperform the market, and they'll be offset by managers who underperform the market. And the solution then for many people is, well, I'm I'm only going to invest with the managers that are winning. 
Well, yeah, of course, because why would you want to put your money with the manager that you know is going to lose? Exactly. Or why would you pick the stock that you know is going to go down? Exactly. And the problem is that we only know how managers have done in the past. We have no idea how they're going to do in the future or how a particular stock will perform in the future. Well, and on that note, so in investment theory, in a number of episodes, we talked about the different factors of return. And this, you've touched on a couple of them, but we talked about having a size premium. So how smaller companies stock return is higher or expected to be higher than larger companies. That's right. And has historically in, in all markets that have been studied. And these come right from the Fama French factor model to which That's you right. mentioned Dr. Fama, who happens to be a Nobel laureate. So he kind of knows what he's talking about. Oh, he's not an idiot. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, nobody's given us a Nobel prize for no. our work here on this podcast. No, exactly. Not yet. No, no. It's quite likely that we'll be nominated <laughs> in the near future. But those factors of return, so it, it was market. So the stock market has a higher expected return than the bond market over long periods of time. That's right. right. They call that the equity premium. The equity premium, exactly. The size premium. So as I just mentioned, small companies have a higher expected return than large companies over long periods of time. Then we got into the price premium. So this is the value versus growth stocks and how value stocks are kind of like stocks that are on sale versus stocks that are overpriced. And they have a higher expected rate of return over long periods of time. So answer me this, given that we know that, say, small companies or value companies have higher expected returns than large companies or growth companies, does that mean they're going to get better returns every year? Well, no, of course not. Because as our last episode, we talked about probability. Exactly. And it's not guaranteed that they're going to get better returns all the time. It's just that historically, they've had better returns in long periods of time. That's right. The probability of value outperforming growth, for example, I think we said was something in the range of I don't know, 68% over a one-year period and up to 80% over a period of 10 years. And so that's an expectation. It's not a guarantee, but it's something that you want to include in your investing strategy in order to play the odds, to be exposed to that factor that has a higher probability of outperforming. I remember one episode before the last U.S. election, we talked a little bit about essentially market timing because... The questions we got were what will happen if Biden wins the presidency or what happens if Trump wins and what will happen to the stock market. That was one of my most favorite episodes, actually, Greg. Yeah, that was great. And we brought in Ben Carlson as well, who talked about that a lot. Ben is a investment professional in the U.S., works for Ritholtz Wealth Management, is the parent company he works for. And he's an interesting guy. He's also got a great podcast, Animal Spirits. He gave us some very good historical reference for what to expect the markets to do around different potential outcomes from the election. Exactly. But he wasn't the only guest we had in the investment theory camp. Right on. We brought in Mark Goldfried, Chief Investment Officer of Canoe Financial, to give us an outlook on fixed income. Because even though we've just spent the last, I don't know, 12 minutes talking about the stock market, in investment theory, we can't ignore the bond market. Absolutely. The bond market just happens to be much larger than the stock market, yet nobody talks about it. I think the bond market in total is worth like $100 trillion globally. It's big. Yeah. <laughs> $100 trillion. If only we had $1 trillion, that would be a really? number, right? Yeah. But we had him come in and talk about that. And then because people, for whatever reason, are more interested in talking about the stock market, we had Eric Ristabin, the I can't remember his title, Chief Global... I think 
Oh, global Chief strategist. Global strategist for Russell Investments. That's right. Yeah. And another smart dude. And he came in and talked about where they expect interest rates and inflation rates and how that'll play on the stock market potentially. And so far, I think he's right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but that was only like a couple of months ago. And we had Alex Heron from PIMCO come in and again, talk about the bond market and asset allocation and being diversified. So in that investment theory bucket, I feel like we've touched on pretty much everything. We have. I think one of the things that's critical is that we understand that all of this background, all of the theory, all of the academics and academia that has gone into developing these investment strategies, which have then been implemented into actual portfolios by a variety of different providers of investment products, the problem of investment management has largely been solved. There's not a whole lot of question about, okay, well, what's the best time to get into the market and what's the best time to get out of the market? Or some of these questions that just dog investors and cause stress on a daily basis, the answers are there. Let's answer it right now. What's the best time to get in the market, Greg? I think when you have money. Yeah. So like now, if you had money now, this would be the best time to get in. Because you don't, as you said, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. No, you don't. And the point is, and people will fret about, okay, well, what if I get in now and the market's high and therefore I won't get a good return going forward? Or what if we're very close to a correction or a bear market? And the answer to that is, well, probably for most of our clients and investors, we're not talking about putting all your money into the stock market because we're talking about having portfolios using asset allocation techniques that ensure that the portfolio itself reflects the individual's ability to take on risk. And so we're not talking about putting all your money into stocks. We're also talking about putting your money into bonds. And if you've reached a point where the stock market is just about to correct and darn it, we just put our money in just before the correction, well, that could benefit bonds. Government bonds in particular are not correlated to stocks. In fact, in some instances, they're negatively correlated, meaning that stocks go down, your government bonds could go up in value. Well, and if you own bonds that are correlated to the stock market, those aren't really bonds that you want to own. Well, you could, but at least in my opinion, you could, but you have to understand what you own and understand the risk. I mean, many people own high yield bonds. Well, high yield bonds are in portfolios because they offer, as the name suggests, a higher yield than other government or lower risk bonds. But you have to understand how they're going to behave. They're going to behave a bit like stocks. When the market corrects, then those high yield bonds could correct as well. Remember the convertible debenture days when we used to participate in a lot of those and there was one Arctic glacier. Remember that Oh, one? yes. Yes, I remember and, uh, that. That was a convertible debenture or what some people called a bond. So this was like June or something and it was supposed to mature in July and it was trading at like I don't know, $86 instead of $100. And people were piling into this thing because if they held the convertible debenture for one month, they would get $14 back plus a last interest payment. How did that work out? Well, it didn't because they converted the debentures to stock and it didn't work out well at all. No. And that's why it's so critical that whenever investment opportunities come up with individual securities, it's really important to understand Exactly what is this security? How does it behave? What are the terms around the security itself that will have it behave differently than you might expect? 
and it's one of the reasons why we suggest to people that if you don't fundamentally understand what you're investing in, then you probably shouldn't be investing in it. Oh, but let's talk about that for a minute. That does not mean go and buy stocks of companies that you do business with. Absolutely. That's right. I'm not talking about the company itself. What I'm talking about is these days, back in the old days when life was simple, there were stocks and there were bonds. Now there's stocks, bonds, structured products, preferred shares with very specific terms that cause them to behave differently than you might expect from a different type of preferred share. And so there's linked notes, notes whose performance is linked to the performance of a particular, whether a stock market index or a particular share of a company or something like that. And so many different terms that might affect the way that particular investment behaves. It's really important for us. And it was talked about in some of our planning discussions that our job is to simplify the complex as opposed to the opposite. We don't want to take simple things and make them more complex. We want to take complex things and make them simple so that people can understand what they're doing, what they're investing in, and how they expect things to behave over time. Well, it is really complex, and that's why we spent a number of episodes talking about investment theory. But let's end that bucket and move to the next bucket, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. And particularly if you buy the concept that the investment problem has been solved, then where do we spend our effort? Where do we spend our time? Well, and actually, where should you start instead of like, unfortunately, a lot of people start with the investment, but they should actually start with what our second bucket is, which is planning. Exactly. So we had a number of episodes on financial planning. We had Blair Howell from our team, a certified financial planner, join us for a couple of those. We talked about things like market cycles, how that affects what you're trying to achieve. We talked about just the fundamentals of having a financial plan and having a plan versus following one, which is, that's a critical item. Just documenting something doesn't mean you're going to be successful. That's right. I mean, a plan is a piece of paper, but planning means it's a living, breathing organism and it's something that you need to look at all the time and make adjustments as necessary. Because I think Blair mentioned something like a goal without a plan is just a wish. Right. Kind of like that saying. We talked a little bit about RRSP versus TFSA because that's a question we get from time to time. And the answer is, should you fund one or both or either? And it depends on what comes out of your plan. And with that, there's a link between financial planning and your investment holdings, of course, because your plan is going to determine how much risk you are required to take to fund your goals. Exactly. And we talked about the fact that if the plan shows that you need a 2 to 3% rate of return on your investments in order to achieve all of the life goals that you've identified, then you have to ask yourself the question, well, why would you therefore take a portfolio that's any riskier than you need to? And we can agree that probably it, a portfolio designed to generate 2 to 3% is going to be less risky than a portfolio that's trying to achieve an 8% rate of return. And people want a high rate of return because they believe that it makes them rich. And obviously it will, if achieved, 8% will make you richer than 2 to 3%. Okay, let's say you get 8% the first year, but you get minus 20 the next. Exactly. Because as we've talked about, 8% is not guaranteed. It might be an average of historical returns, but it's absolutely not a guaranteed number for future returns. It's funny though, like 20 years ago, I remember doing my first financial planning exercise with people and we used to commonly use a rate of return of 8% in financial planning projections. 
now we use a number more like four to five percent. That's right. And again, you have to pick a number that's reasonable, something you believe is achievable over a reasonable period of time, and uh, doesn't require something exceptional happening. One of my favorite parts of the financial planning bucket that we went through this past year was we did three episodes on retirement planning, our retirement planning miniseries. That was a lot of fun. That was fun. And I think we covered off some good stuff there because again, it focused on what you had mentioned earlier. And that is that you can't develop an investment plan unless you have a retirement plan and you can't have a retirement plan unless you do some serious work around setting goals, visualizing your retirement and identifying what does retirement look like? What's it going to cost me? And importantly, how am I going to make course corrections if things change? Because there's a lot of uncertainty. Many people now can say, oh, I know how I'd like to spend my retirement. I'd like to golf every day, et cetera, play tennis, whatever it is. But you have to think long and hard about, okay, well, am I going to play golf every day? Am I going to play tennis every day? How am I spending the rest of my time? I love travel. Am I going to travel 52 weeks a year? Well, in your house, four weeks a year. <laughs> you're going to travel from your bedroom to your kitchen to your office. Exactly. Because we're in lockdown again. That's right. Yeah. So I think that was a fun series to do because it really made people hopefully think about what the future looks like. Well, one of the questions we asked to get some research for that mini series was, what would you do if you had a million dollars? The old Bare Naked Ladies song. Greg, am I promoting the Bare Naked Ladies song, If I Had a Million Dollars? Sure, it's a great song. It's a great song. It's fun to sing. (laughs) (laughs) Promote away. (laughs) (laughs) And we had a number of guest speakers in the financial planning bucket on our show this last year. So we had Don Rogers join us from the Alberta Securities Commission to talk about investment fraud. I don't want to say that was a fun episode, but it was. And it it was was interesting. If something seems too good to be true then it probably is, is basically what it came down to. We had Jamie Gollum back on, who's a noted speaker in Canada anyways, about all things tax. And that was a fun presentation that he gave. Who else did we have on the show? We had Carl Richards, the sketch guy. Carl is great. He has published a book, The One Page Financial Plan, which we have copies of, should anybody want that. And it's great. It's just he talks about simplifying the complex message and basically being able to simplify things like a financial plan down to a single page. Which you can do because the punchline from that book was the investments, like we just talked about, come well after the planning. That's right. And as long as you focus on your asset allocation and be diversified and keep your costs low, you'll be further ahead than if you spend all of your efforts on stock selection. You see, here we're supposed to be talking about financial planning and I went right back to investment theory. On that, well, I guess I've got a link there. We had Daniel Crosby join us not that long ago about behavioral biases. And we did have a couple of behavioral biases discussions. And I would lump this in financial planning because from the plan, you know what you need to do or what you should do. Yet we have these heuristics that get in the way. What are heuristics? Well, good question. These are cognitive biases, Greg. These are mental shortcuts that we haven't meant to create, they're just created within us. And so what's an example? Like hindsight bias is one. So we did a whole episode on woulda, shoulda, coulda, and how ridiculous that is. I should have bought Amazon 15 years ago. Everything seems so clear in hindsight. What your mind does to you, though, is it makes you think that you had all the information back then. 
so your mind thinks, well, I should have known that this pandemic was going to turn into a worldwide global issue that was going to cause us to lock down everything. And we knew about the pandemic back in January, February of last year. And we weren't all running for the hills and selling everything because we couldn't have known that at that time. But our mind plays this trick because we know what's happened now. And so we make that leap. Well, and then he talked to one called, I think it's called normalcy. I think that's right. And it's where how everything that's occurring now we think as normal and will continue on forever. So we've gone through a 35% market correction last March. The stock market is at all-time highs now. And so we just, our heuristic or our cognitive bias is to think that that will just continue forever, which of course it's not going to. I hate to break it to everybody, but there will be another correction at some point. That is sad to hear, but absolutely agree. (laughs) And when that correction occurs, it's important that you refer back to your planning document to see, should you do any course corrections, as you mentioned? That's right. Part of the whole planning process is that, what is a course correction? Well, a course correction might be, look, I can't spend as much this year. I had planned to take two major trips every year, and I might just not be able to do that. If that's the right course correction, then that's something that should be an activity that's undertaken. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Hopefully it's the other way around. Oh, I can take an extra trip this year. Should I or should I not? That kind of thing. We also had Penny Phillips join us. Penny runs a company in the United States called Journey, what's it called? Journey Wealth, Journey Strategic Partners, something like that. Anyways, Penny is a practice management guru and she talked a lot about the importance of trust. So even when you're going through that planning exercise, And implementing the plan in your investment outcomes, there has to be a high level of trust on this stuff. Exactly. And another one of our guests, Tim Noonan, also previously of Russell Investments as well, talked about the importance of trust as being that how can you work with someone across the table if there's not that high level of trust? Well, I would say if to those listeners, if you do not trust the advisor that you're working with, then you should probably exit that relationship. And hey, we're always looking for new clients. (laughs) (laughs) The interesting thing is, and a lot of clients might ask, well, this Penny Phillips, so she consults to advisors. She helps advisors like ourselves in their practice. Well, how does that benefit the client? Well, how that benefits the client is the fact that she helps ensure that the advisors she's working with focus on what's important to the clients and making sure that we're addressing their needs and their interests and their goals as well as we can in order to meet their needs. Because this business isn't about us, it's about the clients. Yeah, constructing the right tools, having the right tools in your toolbox to make sure that people are accomplishing what's important to them that requires planning, money, and time. A phrase we got from our old coach, Steve Moore, who we want to give a shout out to. Absolutely, and hopefully we can have him on one day. That'd be good. Our third bucket, and we won't spend too much time on this one, but is lifestyle planning. and. I guess this would come also out of financial planning, but or even before financial planning, it's got to be thought of like, what kind of life do I want to live? And I go through this with people like, I was on a bike ride yesterday with my neighbor and we were just biking around Calgary. And I said to him like, he's 53, 54 years old. And I said like, what do you want the next 10 years to look like? He's like, interesting you asked me that question. Like I was just talking about that with my wife. We're deciding if we're going to downsize our home, buy a condo, maybe relocate. We're just sort of exploring that. So this lifestyle planning is really critical. It is. And in fact, 
I was just speaking about our discussion with Tim Noonan. He brought up some really interesting points too, talking about his own life and talking about how he's really gone through and doing an inventory of stuff because all of us probably acquire a lot of stuff over the years and certain stuff gives us a lot of pleasure and maybe we accumulate it for lifestyle purposes, for family time. I think of some of my stuff like a boat. Now, how valuable is a boat? Well, as a financial or as an investment, it's horrible. It's probably the worst investment you can make if you consider it a financial asset. For me, it's a lifestyle asset because our kids love it. Our time at the cabin is fantastic, and a lot of that centers around the activity on the boat. There will be a time when that is not occurring anymore, and that boat will not be necessary. And there's a lot of things probably that people accumulate less expensive possibly than boats or more expensive, whether it's recreation property and things like that. And at some point you have to take a look back and say, how does this all fit into my wealth? And is it something I need or is it something I can do without? Well, that's a good question. I had a friend ask me about, they wanted to sell their place in Invermere and buy a bigger place. And he asked if I thought that was a good investment. And I said, look, you're not doing this because it's a good investment. You're doing this because you're trying to create a different life. That's right. Because from an investment perspective, it actually probably doesn't make a lot of sense. And they did. And I think they enjoy their new place better. Exactly. And that's the right reason. Yeah. It's a lifestyle choice. We spent a couple episodes talking about things like the evolution of advice, how it, in the old days, in our Neanderthal knuckle dragging behavior days, it was stock picking is it. And how over time, it's changed dramatically. And we're talking about things like, should I upgrade my cabin? And that's the thing. And I mentioned this. I mean, this is my 25th year in the business. And when I started, it was the relationship with the client and the relationship with the investment products was all transactional. It was a transactional relationship. We talked to clients, not because we wanted to know how they were doing. We wanted to make sure that their financial goals are being achieved. We talked to them because there was a recommendation to sell a particular stock and to buy a different one. And that was the nature of the relationship. And I think I can say that the relationships have improved dramatically between advisors and clients, hopefully. If you're dealing with the right person. And we're focusing on much bigger questions, not whether or not you're going to get a better performance out of one stock or another, but whether the investment strategy is going to deliver on their financial goals. Right on. We had Tara McCool actually join us this last year. Tara McCool, a local sort of media celebrity-ish type of person who runs a company focused on compassionate leadership. And I think that falls right into that lifestyle planning bucket because even as leaders in a business or in an industry, the importance of compassion is important. Absolutely. And so that falls into that lifestyle planning bucket. But anything else that you want to wrap well, this up Well, you know, with? we talked a little bit about philanthropy. That was not too long ago. Chris Putnam Walkerly joined us. For That's that right. One. She's a US-based expert on philanthropy. And it's something that a lot of people don't actually think of all the time. Gee, how am I going to use my wealth to help others? And I think sometimes it's because maybe people have priorities with their families they want to take care of. And other times I think it's just because it just doesn't pop to mind. And I think there's a role that everyone has to consider. Do I want to use some of my wealth to help others, whether it's other causes, the environment, other people, animals, you name it. But it's something that should at least be discussed and thought about. 
So that's it. That was the year, Greg. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground over the last 50 episodes. And, well, we're looking forward to this coming year. And we'll be trying to bring in interesting speakers as we have in the past. One of the most fun things for me is when we bring in our U.S. speakers and we try to get them to spell Saskatchewan. Exactly. Because we had every single one of them try to spell Saskatchewan. And do any of them know what craft dinner is? <laughs> Actually, I don't think anybody did. Maybe Daniel no, Crosby think, did. I think Daniel Crosby, having lived in Calgary for a while, I yeah. think he <laughs> might have bought the odd box. And as always, we encourage all of our listeners to let us know if there's some specific topics that you'd like us to cover off. We're happy to do that. And we'll be sure to include that in our plans for next year. Right on. Well, listen, we need a standing ovation. Because we're going to go into a new year. No, no, stop. Thank you. No, no, not necessary. <laughs> well, I shouldn't say going into a new year. We're going into a new year of recording. And That's I'm right. hoping that a year from now when we're doing year two wrap up, we're not still locked down and that things have opened up and improved dramatically. Let's hope. All right. Okay. Well, thanks for listening. Until next time. Until next time. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2020.